The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. So some of you uh, may know this, uh, maybe you don't, um, but for my wife and I, our oldest son is a student at Pepperdine University, and so uh, my week this week, I get up Thursday morning, I get in my car, I turn on my favorite radio station, WWJ, where I get traffic and weather together on the 8s, and I hear about a shooting out in California with a bunch of Pepperdine students where they were a part of a club. Can't get a hold of my son. Hours go by. Finally, he responds. And then a couple hours later, that very same night, he calls me. He says, Dad, you're never going to believe this, but there are wildfires that are converging on our campus. They're telling us to shelter in place. I can see the fires coming up the hill. It's all smoke, and I don't know what to do. God, why are you allowing this? And will I, will he, will we, will they? make it through it. So I don't know if you asked those questions this past week like I did, but we've said every single week in this series that these two questions are at the very heart and center of what it is that we experience as followers of Jesus. They're at the heart and center of what it is that we're talking about in this whole series together called Greater, this idea of believing that God is actually good even when life in this world is not. Now, one of the things that we have said every single week in this series is that it's so easy for all of us to conclude when we actually experience adversity in this life, right? To experience that, that we would come to, to believe the idea that adversity means that God is actually absent, right? That's so easy for us to conclude when it comes to God's presence, when it comes to God's work in our hearts, that adversity would mean that God is not there. But every single week in this series, we've said that's not true, right? That is absolutely not true. God's adversity does not mean that God is absent. It does not mean that God does not care. And it does not mean that he is not aware of what's happening to us. And the reason we said that is because we said this is filled with the stories of men and women whose lives were filled with all kinds of different adversity. And if God was faithful to them in here, that means he will be faithful to you because this is also the record of the Savior who is the same. And he is the same yesterday, he is the same today, and he is the same forever. He does not change. So if he was faithful in here, then that means he's going to be faithful to you and your circumstance as well. Now, there is also in here a very, very significant verse for every single one of us who are in the midst of a greater than moment, a crisis of faith in our lives right now. And it's a verse that maybe would not come to mind. It's a little bit obscure, but it's a verse that speaks directly to what it is that we're talking about in this series. The verse is found in John chapter 1. It's verse 18, and it's the Apostle John, one of Jesus' followers, who tells us this, that no one has ever seen God But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, that he has explained him. John tells us that one of the reasons Jesus actually came to earth was to explain 
God. Now, the reason why that matters is because if you're anything at all like me, when I'm in a greater than moment, one of the things I think is that somebody has a lot of explaining to do. Right? And Jesus actually says, you know what, that's okay. That's okay because that is a part of the reason why I'm here. I am here to explain who your Heavenly Father really is. I'm here to tell you what your Heavenly Father is really like. And that means that you and I, we will never get closer to understanding what God is like than knowing Jesus. Right? If you are moving away from knowing Jesus, you're actually moving away from understanding God. If you stop short of knowing Jesus... And a lot of people in our world today stop short of knowing Jesus. But if you stop short of knowing Jesus, you are stopping short of understanding your Heavenly Father. And so today, what I want us to do is to spend a few moments together. I want us to look at an event from the life of Jesus. It's an event that's familiar probably to most of us, probably many of you. This will immediately bring you back to your days of vacation Bible school or Sunday school. But even though it may be an event that you remember hearing about, I want you to try to experience this and hear this as if it was the first time today. Because this event tells us something that's so important for us to know, something that we can lose sight of when we are in the midst of a greater than moment. But it's something that if that's you today, you need to know that's true about your Heavenly Father. It's found in John chapter 9, which is on page 1,664 in the Bibles that are in front of you. Now in John chapter 9, the beginning of this chapter, Jesus is with his disciples and John tells us that as he, that's Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man who was born blind, he was blind from birth. And so because of this, Jesus' disciples, they ask Jesus a question. And this is actually a great question because it's a question that reveals a very common misunderstanding about God, a misunderstanding about God that actually exists for many of us in our world today. And they say to Jesus, okay, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was actually born blind? And so their assumption is the same thing that, frankly, many of us assume, which is that if this man was born blind, that's because somebody did something wrong. Either he did something wrong or his parents did something wrong. Now, it's always interesting to me how much bad theology gets out there anytime we talk about the subjects of pain and suffering. And see, this tells us that's not new. That's actually been going on since the very beginning. In fact, we're going to bump into some really bad theology a couple of different times in this event today. Because, see, what these people believed is what a lot of people in our world believe today, which is that anytime somebody's born with a physical handicap, anytime somebody has a disability, anytime somebody develops some kind of a chronic illness, these people believe that that was a sign that they had sinned or they had done something wrong and they were paying for that sin or somebody else was paying for that sin in their family. And, and my guess is that probably you have had that question or some other question like that at some point in your life. Because I have had so many people come to me as a pastor over the years and say things like, okay, Joe, is the reason why this is happening to me and my family right now, is this because we did something, I did something bad? Right? Do you ever wonder if you're suffering is your fault? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? Maybe not directly related to something that you did, but maybe you're thinking back to your college years, maybe you're thinking back to your teenage years, and you're wondering if God is now punishing you today for something that happened way back then in a previous season of your life. See, the assumption often is, is that if something bad is happening to me, that's my fault. I did something. 
that God is paying me back. So now Jesus is confronted with this very, very important question. Who did this, Jesus? Who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? Who's to blame? And so Jesus... When he hears this question, right, thankfully for me, thankfully for my wife, he doesn't say it's the parents' fault, right? And neither does Jesus say, no, it's this man's fault. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that this guy is either going to do or has done something wrong. Maybe God knows that he's going to do something wrong in his future, so God is withholding his vision from him, you know, to get even with him because God is angry at him. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Instead, what Jesus says next to answer a question that I've had in my greater than moments, and perhaps you have too, what Jesus says next is truly life-changing and it is life-giving because Jesus says neither, right? Neither, neither of those things. It is nobody's fault. Jesus says neither this man nor his parents sinned. Jesus says that whole question is wrong. That whole idea is wrong. That is not at all what is going on with this man. Now, certainly, certainly Jesus is not telling us that this man and his parents were sinless, right? That's not what he's saying in here. But what he is saying is that for us to try to connect, right, certain illnesses, certain conditions, certain physical disabilities to some specific sin, Jesus just flat out rejects that entire idea. And nor is Jesus saying this. This is hugely important that you hear this today. Nor is Jesus saying or suggesting that that God deliberately withheld this guy's vision from him so that years later Jesus could come along and use him as an object lesson. That is not what this text is teaching. See, the truth is this. One of the challenges that comes from actually reading ancient Greek manuscripts is that there's no punctuation in them whatsoever. And so every translation actually punctuates a text slightly differently. Now the truth is, most of the time, that has no bearing whatsoever on what it is or how it is that we actually read the text. But this time, it does. Because what Jesus says next in verse 3 and 4 is this. This is the most literal way to translate what Jesus said in the Greek. Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him that sent me while it is still day. See, Jesus says, stop trying to assign blame in this situation. This is about the fact. This isn't about blame. This is about the fact that I am here right now to fix what is broken. Jesus is saying, listen, your heavenly Father has actually sent me right now to do something in this man's life to fix something and heal something, not to curse him. And notice in verse 4, Jesus actually uses the word we. He doesn't say I. He says we. You and I as his followers, we are actually the ones to do the work of the one who sent Jesus. So while Jesus' disciples are sitting there and they're hearing all this and they're thinking about, okay, what does this actually mean, Jesus, and what are you trying to say? All of a sudden, (laughs) Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud with the saliva and smears it in this guy's eyes. Now admit it, is that not the most disgusting thing you have ever heard? 
It's like, Jesus, what was Mary teaching you when you were growing up? Come on, what was going on in your house? Right? Verse 7. Go, Jesus tells the man, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man, he went and washed, and he came home seeing. Right? you got to try to picture this. So this guy, right, has never seen anything before in his life. And suddenly this weird stranger comes up behind him, makes this nasty mud, smears it all over his eyes, and tells him to go wash it out. And it's like, well, i got to go wash someplace at this point. Right? So he gets somebody, we don't know who, to take him to this pool right here. This is the pool of Siloam. It was a very large public gathering place. And again, imagine this. As he is actually washing his face in the water, he realizes, oh my goodness, I can see. So he runs for home, verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same guy who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, No, listen, it's really me. I am the one. I'm the guy. So an argument actually breaks out. And he's like, No, wait, wait, wait. It really is me. I'm that guy. How then were your eyes opened? They demanded. He replies, verse 11, The man... They call Jesus, notice, not Savior, not Son of God, not Messiah, right? He just says, the man, they call Jesus, he made some mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed and then I could see. And then these people ask this terribly dumb question. Perhaps the dumbest question in this entire book. And these people, they actually say to this guy, where is this man, they asked him. Think about it for a second. I don't know. I didn't see where he went. It's in there. I'm telling you, it's right there. So they, right, so they, all these people in this crowd, verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. So they had to do this, right? Because there's actually a law in the Old Testament that says, if you ever experience a miraculous healing, if you're ever cured miraculously of some contagious disease, then you need to actually come before the religious leaders. They kind of need to, you know, check you out, ask you some questions, check off a couple of boxes, make sure that you're not going to bring a plague back to society or anything like that, and kind of look at you and say, yep, you're healed and you're good to go. So that's what they do, right? So this guy does exactly what the law says. He goes to the Pharisees, right? But there is a problem because in verse 14, the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was? It was Sabbath. It was a Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. We have a problem. See how ridiculous this is? Right, see, we laugh at this, right, but this was their box. This was their box. God doesn't work on the Sabbath. That's ridiculous to us. But the truth is, all of us have a box like that. All of us have these rules that we think God operates within. 
And see, these people, they were positive. They knew for certain that God would not do this because we have a very long list of what it is that God does and does not do. And we know exactly that God, he would not do this. And the reason we know this is because God always takes a day off. And today is God's day off. And that means God would not do a miracle on the Sabbath. So that means regardless of what this guy tells you, he is not of God because God, we know everything about him and he would not do this because we have a very long list right here that tells us exactly what it is that God does. Fortunately, for all of us, right, there are actually some people like you in the crowd that day because other people said, wait, wait, wait just a minute here. How can a sinner, verse 16, how can a sinner, right, because somebody who, who violates the Sabbath, right, how can a sinner do such miraculous things. And so they became divided. It was like, oh, okay. That's kind of a good point, I guess. Verse 17, finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. The man said, I don't know, he's a prophet? I mean, I, I didn't even see him, right? I don't even know what he looks like. I, what am I supposed to say? I, I guess he, he, he's, he's a prophet? I, I, I don't know. Verse 18, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We, don't, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this. Because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided, because see, we have a list. Because we know exactly what God does. Because we know the box that God operates in. And we know God wouldn't do this. And so they had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Now, in this day, in this age, in this culture, that was a very, very big deal because to be put out of the synagogue meant you could no longer work. It meant you could no longer be part of society. You could no longer worship in the temple. You could no longer offer the sacrifices required by the law of Moses in the temple, that you were basically now like a tax collector, that you were just out. And so in verse 23, that is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man, talking about Jesus, is a sinner. In other words, there has to be another explanation. There has to be another explanation that fits inside of our box because this makes no sense to us. We know how God works, and God would not do this. This is way outside of the parameters of how it is that God works, how it is that we view God. The man replied in verse 25, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. In other words, I can't tell you a lot about Jesus. I can't answer all your questions. I, I, I don't know if he was a rabbi or a prophet. I don't know if he's the Messiah or if he's just a magician. I, I don't know, so I can't explain everything. But I can explain one thing. Once I was blind, and now I can see. So then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, 
I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him. And they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Verse 30. The man answered. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, which is not true, but that's what they believed. He listens only to the godly person who does his will, which again is not true, but that's what they were told. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. What he's saying to them is this, listen. Isn't it possible that God is actually bigger than the way that we have conceived of God? Isn't it at least possible that God is actually more merciful than the way that we think of God? Isn't it possible that God might actually be willing to do for an unworthy person like me? But if we're honest maybe we wouldn't be willing to do for an unworthy person like me? To this, the Pharisees replied in verse 34, you were steeped in sin at birth. In other words, somebody sinned for you to be born blind. We don't know who, and frankly, we don't care. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out inference they threw him out and his family out of the synagogue and when that happened when that happened that finally set the stage for you and I today to learn some incredible truths about our heavenly father truths that are so important for you to know right now if you are in the midst of a greater than moment because see Jesus showed up to make it clear to every one of us that nobody, absolutely nobody, regardless of their situation, regardless of their condition, regardless of their past, absolutely nobody is outside the bounds of our Heavenly Father's grace and mercy. No matter how it is you think about your Heavenly Father, Jesus would say, do not ever think of Him in a way that puts somebody, anybody, outside of His mercy and His grace. Because your Heavenly Father, He takes personal interest in individual people. Now this is huge for you if you are in the midst of a greater than moment because if you are, if you are anything at all like me, then maybe you think like sometimes I think, okay, does that whole verse that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, does that mean that God like loved everybody all at once, right? And then he went off and did something else. Like when I pray, I mean, is this an individual thing, God? Do you actually hear my prayers, or is it just like a whole bunch of people murmuring and God's like, oh, look, they're so cute, they're all praying right now. I'm like, is that what's going on? Or God, do you actually hear me as an individual? One of the most powerful truths that we learn just from watching the ministry of Jesus take place is that when Jesus chooses to heal people, 
He chooses to heal them one at a time. Jesus didn't need to do this. Have you ever thought about this? He could have just waved his hands. Everyone's healed. You read through the Gospel of Mark. Circle the word crowd. Every time you see crowd in the Gospel of Mark, what you will discover is that Jesus is constantly surrounded by people, sick people, and yet one at a time, person to person to person to person to person, he heals them, heals them all individually. Why? Because he is teaching us something about our Heavenly Father, that our Heavenly Father actually cares about us as individuals. You would never know that. I would never know that apart from Jesus. And then listen to how this whole part, this whole event ends. This has become my favorite part of this story. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they, the religious leader, had thrown him, this man and his family, out of the synagogue, and when he found him. So Jesus actually goes looking for this guy, just like the lost sheep, just like the lost coin, just like that lost younger brother, except this isn't a parable. This, this is Jesus. See, individuals matter to Jesus because individuals matter to their Heavenly Father. You and I would never know that apart from Jesus. And let's be honest. We might never have ever learned that from the religious system, maybe, that some of us grew up in. So Jesus finds this guy. And he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that's a theological question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And meanwhile, this guy's got to be thinking, okay, listen, I don't know if I can place it, but that voice sounds really, really familiar right now. And he says in verse 36, Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus says, You have now seen. In fact, he is the one who is speaking with you. Because, see, I tracked you down. Because, see, it wasn't enough for me, for you to just receive my grace in your time of need. No, I wanted you to see me, Jesus is saying, personally. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. See, the truth is, for all of us in life in this world, there are situations, there are circumstances, there are events of life that cause all of us to question and to doubt and to wonder, is God there? Does God care? And is God actually aware of what's happening to me? to my family right now. And see, here's what we need to remember when we find ourselves in the midst of these greater than moments. Our fears thrive when you and I get focused on the pieces of the puzzle that are missing. See, I, really, my, I begin to doubt, right? I, I begin to doubt when I get really focused on the God's how could you and God's why didn't you and God's you know you should have's. I doubt and you doubt when I get really focused on those things that I can't explain and I forget about or I ignore those things that I know are true. 
See, I doubt when God doesn't act the way I think he should act, when he doesn't answer the prayer the way I think he should answer the prayer, when he doesn't respond the way I think God should respond. Basically, I doubt and you doubt when God does not act the way that I think God should act, the way I would act if I were God. See, that's when I begin to doubt whether or not God actually loves me personally. And see, if I get really focused on the things I don't understand Not only do I begin to doubt, but the longer I focus on those things, the more my faith actually begins to shrink and get smaller. But when we focus our attention away from those things that we don't understand, those things that we can't explain, and when we focus on those things that we cannot deny that are true, it's in those moments that our faith actually grows. Because see, what all of us, regardless of whatever situation of life you are in right now, whatever greater than moment you're in right now, the thing that we cannot deny, the thing that none of us can deny, is that we're actually here. That you and I, that we actually exist. What nobody can deny is that the only alternative to the idea that every single one of you are actually a part of God's unique and special creation is to believe that something just randomly appeared from nothing. That is the best that we can do. What nobody can deny is that there's a creator. What nobody can deny is that there is a creation. What nobody can deny is that all of the earth and all of the things of the earth, they shout of God's glory and they shout of his existence. You know what else we can't deny? That 2,000 years ago, a baby boy was born in Bethlehem, and his name was Jesus. But see, we shouldn't even know this, because he was a nobody. We shouldn't even know his name, let alone where it was that he was born, because he wasn't the son of a king, or an emperor, or a governor. He was the son of a carpenter. He should have been born and died without anybody ever even knowing that he existed. But when this baby boy grew up, he began to teach And when he taught, he said things that people had never heard before. And then he began to perform miracles that nobody had ever seen before. And the way that we know he actually performed these miracles was because the people who were closest to him, they actually wrote them down. And this boy Jesus spent three years of his life teaching and performing a whole variety of miracles. And then at the end of his life, after performing those miracles, he was executed on a Roman cross. Roman history tells us all of this. And the very same people who recorded the miracles that Jesus performed, they also record the fact that three days after he was executed, he rose again from the dead. But who in the world could believe that a dead man could come back to life again? The eyewitnesses who tell us about Jesus' resurrection, they also, they gave up their lives, not because of what Jesus taught, not because of what they believed. Don't miss this. They gave up their lives for what it is that they saw. They gave up their lives for what it is that they experienced. They gave up their lives because they saw 
saw a man, they and an entire city witnessed as being tortured and executed, they saw him alive again. And it was this message recorded by these eyewitnesses that began to spread all throughout the Middle East and Europe and eventually the entire world. And today in our world, more than two billion people who are alive in this world today on every continent, from countless languages and cultures and ethnicities, they all believe that a Jewish carpenter rose from the dead. And the reason they believe is because when they believe, when they place their faith in the fact that Jesus' death on the cross was the payment for and the salvation from their sin, they believe they were too born blind. But because of what it is that Jesus has done in their life that they now can see. And if you were to ask them to explain how it is that that happened, they would say to you the very same thing that this man said. I can't explain it, but I can't deny it. I was blind and now I see. I needed my sins to be forgiven. Not ignored, not hidden, not covered, but forgiven. And when I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, something actually happened to me. Something happened on the inside, not from something that I did, but something that he did. And now somehow, because of that, I have peace in the midst of suffering. Somehow, because of that, I actually have joy in the midst of uncertainty. I'm not fearful like I used to be. And no, I can't fully explain it, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Think about it. A Jewish carpenter that an entire religion tried to destroy, that an entire empire tried to destroy, and yet we know more about him than any other ancient person who's ever lived. Why do we know his name? Why did his message survive? Why did the miracles survive that he recorded? Why would so many people actually give up their own lives to tell us that a dead man came back to life again? Are there things that we don't understand? Of course there are things that we don't understand. Are there things that we can't explain? Of course there are things that we cannot explain. But the truth is so obvious that there is a God and that his son Jesus came into this world to die for your sin and to die for my sin. And today more than two billion people who are alive will tell you that when they stopped fighting against that truth, when they received that truth, as difficult as it may be to explain, even as difficult as their personal circumstances in life might be right now, that they change from the inside out because this is truth. Because a Jewish carpenter said, I am the light of the world. I am the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And the only reason that anybody throughout history has even bothered to listen to anything he had to say is because he did rise from the dead. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people witnessed that fact. And today, more than 2,000 years later, we still celebrate and worship him as Savior. And do you know what else is true? God has given to all of us a story to tell. And some of our stories don't have fairy tale endings. Some of our stories, God doesn't put all the pieces back together again. Sometimes it doesn't all end magically, happily ever after. But what's true is that somewhere in your story and in my story, there is a Savior with nail-scarred hands saying, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Faith feeds. Faith grows. 
faith thrives on truth, right? Faith, feeding your faith starves your doubts. Life in this world feeds your doubts. Circumstances always feeds your doubts. God's word, God's truth, God's people, God's presence always feeds your faith. Even questions, even questions can feed your faith. Questions like this. God, where is your power being displayed in my life right now in spite of my greater than moment? Because he is there. And he is greater than whatever it is that you are facing in life right now. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Father, you know every heart in this room, you know where we struggle, you know our fears, you know our doubts. And so, Jesus, I pray for the person that's here today whose faith is being choked out by the worries and the unanswered questions and the greater than moments that come in this life. And Father, please, I pray that for all of us, you would remind us that when we feed our faith, we starve our doubts. And so, Jesus, I would ask that you would do that, that you would feed our faith. Jesus, I ask that you would do what only you can do, that you would allow our faith to grow in the midst of our circumstance, despite our circumstance. And Jesus, I pray that we would be so wise as your people, that we would be so wise in what it is that our enemy tries to get us to do by making us so busy that we don't take time to pray, by making us so busy that we don't take time to read your truth, your word that you've given to us. In fact, Father, I pray that today for a whole bunch of us, maybe for the first time, maybe for just the first time in a long time, that we would just set aside a couple of minutes a day, not hours, just minutes, Father, to read the truth of your word, that our faith would grow because of your word that you give to us, your truth that maybe we would just start reading where we began today in John chapter 1. And Father, I pray for the person that's here today that needs to be reminded that you are there, you are present, and you are aware. Father, I pray that this, what it is that you have said to us today, would be that reminder that you are greater than whatever it is that we face in our world and that Jesus, you are the one who opens up our eyes so that we can actually see you and recognize you as our Savior and our Lord. Jesus, all this we pray in your name.